Amen. We're going to read this morning from Psalm chapter 120. Um, Psalm chapter 120. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, I uh, really would encourage you to follow along in uh, the, the, the copy of the Bible that you have um, in the seat in front of you. Um, and so that's on page 516. And, and Psalm 120 uh, reads like this, a song of a sense. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the, of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell in the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Thank you, for, Lord, for your word um, and for the scriptures uh, that, you have, that you have breathed um, so that we may uh, know who you are um, through encountering who Christ is um, and through Christ um, knowing, knowing, uh, knowing about ourselves um, knowing the sin that, that dwells within us and knowing the sin um, that, that we have been delivered from, um, the, 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 uh, the, the bonds of sin that we have been delivered from through faith in Christ. Um, and we pray this morning again in his name. Amen. Amen. All right, you may have a seat. I, uh, I have discovered... Um, that a complicated relationship with the Psalms is not uncommon. Um, I, have, I have heard people say, <laughs> believe it or not, I don't like the Psalms. Maybe that's some of you. Have any of you ever said that? You just, that, that's fine. There's no judgment here. We're not, we're not judging. But, but I have discovered again that a complicated relationship with the Psalms um, is, is not uncommon. And, and so here, let me, let me kind of uh, put you at ease. Admittedly, uh, this was the case for me um, until, until two things happened, and I remember them very distinctly. The first was I began singing them, uh, began singing the psalms, um, and, and s- several of my favorite artists um, are those who have written, um, who have put music to the psalms, um, and, and, uh, and have, I have benefited very greatly from that. Um, that sounds very spiritual. This next one's not going to sound that spiritual. The second thing that I remember very distinctly in um, coming to love them was the year 2020. Um, remember that year? Uh, seems, seems, like, seems like 100 years ago. It seems like yesterday, right? Um, 2020 uh, brought about for me um, a deep dive into the Psalms. In fact, uh, for the for the few weeks that as a church, when, when nobody really knew what was going on or what the, the long-term effects were going to be of all of this, and, and before all of the, you know, yeah, all of that started happening in, in 2020, um, we, our, our church for several weeks did not come together. Um, and, and it was through that time, about eight, nine weeks, um, if you recall, uh, that, that our online presence, we just walked through different psalms together. Um, and so we, Thomas and Kevin and myself, uh, our brother John Gibson, who is no longer with us, um, he, it's okay, he's still alive, he's in Houston, um, John, John Gibson, and uh, I'm trying to think if there was anyone else who, who jumped in on that, Jordan, I don't think, no, not yet. Um, and so through those few weeks, we just as a church walked through the Psalms together um, and, and tried to keep it real short. And uh, so, so those were kind of two big instances in my life where the Psalms came alive to me. Um, and, and I want to say that, that part of my hope and my prayer is that we gain through this summer, as we walk through these 15 Psalms together, that we gain a deeper love and appreciation for what is going on in the Psalms. Um, and so for what shifted for me that year in 2020 and how I related to the Psalms was first actually reading them. Um, I actually read them, um, and I opened my Bible and did it. You know, you can also walk the aisles of Hobby Lobby and get your fill of the Psalms. You know that, right? Um, if you'll just, you know, that, like, moms, what more do you need? Uh, what more encouragement to read the Bible do you need than to just go to Hobby Lobby, walk the art aisle, and you will get your Bible reading in for the day. Um, and most of them are the Psalms. 
And so I actually opened my Bible and read them for myself very deeply that summer. Uh, but here's what I want us to do um, this morning. This is kind of like a, this is like a two-tiered uh, message that I want to share with us today. Um, and, and, and the first is, is really, as you know, with most uh, series that we do, most books that we walk through, we kind of start with a little bit of an introduction to what we're doing. Um, and so I, I want to take a little bit of an unconventional route with that this morning. And like I said, our hope is that we gain a deeper love, understanding, and appreciation for the Psalms this summer. And I want to give three... Um, I want to give three vital lens that, I, that, I, that helped me in reading the Psalms. Um, and, and this is tier one of, of, of the message today. And then we're going to actually walk through this Psalm. So forgive me that we're pushing Psalm 120 a little bit towards halfway through here. But I want to give you three uh, vital lens through which to read the Psalms that, by God's grace, will help the Psalms maybe come alive to you um, in a deeper way. In the first uh, the, the first thing, the first lens that we, are, that we ought to read the Psalms through to help them come alive to us is a Christocentric lens. Does that make sense? Christocentric? Take all like the, the weird and just Christ-centered. A Christ-centered lens, reading the Psalms through a Christ-centered lens. And so what I mean by that, how that helped me, how, how that helped the Psalms come alive in my life is, is in coming to understand the forward-looking faith that is present in the Psalms. Um, that as the Psalms are written, the, the Psalms are written by uh, primarily those who have a forward-looking faith. So what I mean by that is that we as Christians in our day and age today, uh, we have a, we have a backward-looking faith, right? We look back and we recall and we have history of what happened um, in, in, uh, on, on, on that hill, um, that, that, that we have something to look back on. Well, those in the Psalms are those with a deep, abiding, forward-looking faith, namely faith in what God had promised to His people, um, better yet, who it was that God had promised to his people. And so in all of those areas where God was promising his people and covenanting with his people, the scriptures will tell us that Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of those things. In fact, the ultimate fulfillment and the embodiment of the Psalm 1 blessed man you know that, that, that blessed man in Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor sits and stands and all those things, but, his, but uh, someone help me out here. Uh, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. The Psalm 1 blessed man has his ultimate fulfillment in Christ. Christ is who delights himself ultimately in the Lord in a sufficient way, in a perfect way, in a spotless way. The ultimate fulfillment of the Psalm 16 incorruptible, non-decaying man, as Acts 2 will tell us, is Christ. Peter says, David, the one who wrote Psalm 16, his grave is with us to this day. Therefore, let me tell you who the psalm is talking about, whose body would not decay, that's Christ. And so we read the Psalms through a Christ-centered way. The Psalms really came alive for me when I realized who the hero of the Bible is, who the hero of the Bible is, who the ultimate singer of the Psalms is, all of the magnificent victories in the Psalms and all of the despairing losses of the Psalms have particular immediate fulfillment. Please, please don't hear what I'm not saying. That it, has, that it has no immediate context. It certainly has immediate context in the Psalms, but they all find their ultimate fulfillment in the suffering yet victorious Son of God, Jesus Christ. And so if we read only through a me-centered lens, the Psalms, I don't know if you've ever done this before, but you take a Psalm and you look at a Psalm, you're like, yeah, that sounds a lot like my situation. I'm going to insert myself right there. And then you start to think, well, the, the next line sure doesn't sound like what I'm going through. But if we read only through a me-centered lens, we will soon be frustrated and confused, both by the intense sufferings and the extraordinary innocence written about in the Psalms. Have you read those Psalms where it says, like, there is no impure way within me? I'm like, that's not me. That, that sure, sure isn't me. So if we, if we read that, we're going to be confused by the intense sufferings and the extraordinary... Let, let me give you two examples. Psalm 88. 
um, is one of those that speak of intense sufferings. Psalm chapter 88, verses really 3 through 15, speak of intense sufferings that, that I've never experienced, that I, that I likely won't ever experience. And then Psalm 17, verses 3 and 5, speak of an extraordinary inner innocence that is certainly not relatable with who I am and what goes on in my heart and in my mind. And, and I would say is certainly not something that David can claim only of himself, but rather with the one who is to come in mind. And so, church, in, in order for the Psalms to come alive for us, not every Psalm is immediately about Christ. We do need to understand them in the proper context, but the Psalms are to point us ultimately to Christ. The Psalms point us ultimately to Him. And so, listen, y'all, if you will read the Psalms with a Christ-centered lens on, they will come alive for you in a way that they may never have. And maybe you've doing that, been doing that for years and you've got lots to teach me because I've only been doing it for a couple years. <laughs> I've only understood that for, for a couple of years. And, and, and so... That's one way. The second thing that, I, that will help make the Psalms come alive to you is reading them through a, a corporate or a covenant lens. A, a corporate lens, so like a people a, a, or, or, or the covenant that God has made. We kind of mentioned that already, but this significant component will enlarge our hearts for the Psalms. Time after time in the Psalms, we read about the people of God. We read about the sanctuary of God. We, we read about the covenant of God. And all of these are written, and they're all dealing with the communal nature of God's people. They're not, they're, yes, there are psalms that are written where a person is alone and desolate out in a desert, but, but almost always when, you, when, when the psalmist writes about what is the solution for this deep, this, this deep spot that I'm in, he, Psalm 73 is a great example. So you got Psalm 73. I would say it's very relatable to our day and age, but you got Psalm 73 where the psalmist is just absolutely confused by what's going on. And, and what's the moment of clarity in that chapter for the writer? Until I went to the sanctuary of God. Until I went to the sanctuary of God. Now, don't, don't think of sanctuary like this room right here. Think of sanctuary as all of the benefits of the people of God. The, the, the writer would not have written the sanctuary of God without thinking about being with the people of God. You know where he did not receive clarity? In his private closet by himself. He received clarity when he went into the presence of God, with the people of God, and, we, and, and in order for the Psalms to come alive for us, we must understand this corporate covenantal nature of the, the people of God. The Psalms really tear down for us this modern mindset of individual, individualistic faith. And it will constantly push us to being with the people of God. That you know what? If there is clarity to be sought, if there is clarity to be found, it's going to be in the ways where God has prescribed for us to know Him and to understand Him and love Him more deeply. And, and a big component of that is with the people of God, wherever that may be. And however that may be, whether that be in, in the secret hiding basements of Afghanistan or whether that be in the, in the pretty white walls of, of this place. And are there, are, there, are there areas where we misrepresent that? Absolutely. But understand this covenantal nature. These are psalms sung together by the church for centuries. You know, Ephesians, um, no, it's actually 1 Corinthians talks about if one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. Unfortunately, this does not mean as much for us as it might have for the early church. And so there's this, this nature. The Psalms are wonderful. Let me just tell you this. Let me tell you this from, from personal experience. The Psalms are wonderful for personal devotion. They're, 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 they are one of the, they're one of the best ways to begin your day, I believe. But I believe also they have primarily been the most formative and utilized for the whole of the church and not just individual parts. That as a people, we recall what God did. Hey, the Psalms have as their backdrop, and so many of these Psalms, and we'll see this even in 120, so many of the Psalms have as their backdrop the deliverance of the people of God from the, from the hands of Egypt. 
They're recalling the covenant that God made as he brought them out, the deliverance that he brought. And you know what? It, it, God wasn't just releasing like individual people, like, hey, you go here and you go here. He was, he was bringing out a people for himself, covenanting with them. And so who is continually being called upon in the Psalms is the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. And what a deeply profound truth. And then I think the third thing that will help the third lens that will help the Psalms come alive for us is, the, is, is, not just, is, is not just reading them Christocentrically, not only reading them through a covenantal lens, but also reading them through the lens of the character of God, who God is, who God really is. The Psalms are read through the lens of God's character. The, the, the continual refrain and appeal, whether it be Psalm of hope or psalms of lament is the character of God. All as the situations and the scenes change throughout psalms, you'll notice as the situations and the scenes change throughout psalms, you know what doesn't change? God. As the, as the characters change, you've got you've got David writing this psalm, you've got Asaph writing this psalm, you've got people writing this psalms, you've got psalms of of great hope, you've got psalms of great lament and suffering, and they're all crying out to the same God who never changes and who never wavers because the Psalms are to be read through the lens of the character of God. Even when those uh, pesky imprecatory Psalms are prayed, you know about those? We'll, we'll talk about those more in just a little bit, but imprecatory, imprecatory Psalms are essentially those Psalms where the psalmist is like praying down fire on his enemies. And you're like, what do I do with this? Like, I got some people I could pray this over, but, you know, what do we do with this? Let me just, let me, let's, here's a baseline, and we'll talk about this more later. The imprecatory Psalms are, can I just say this, are also based on the character of God and the nature of God and what God has promised to do as a just and holy God against sin. And so Christopher Ash, he's, he's an author, he explains the Psalms as authorized response to God, an authorized response given to, uh, given to us by God. And he says that most of the Bible speaks to us, and the Psalms, but the Psalms speak for us. They speak for us in the word from God to be spoken to God. The Psalms teach us how to pray. The Psalms teach us that our prayers must be taken to God. And so church family, this summer, as we walk through the Psalms together, next week we're going to have a, we've, we've, we're, we're one week late, and so, so forgive us, but uh, next week we're going to have a, like a very nice comb-bound um, scripture journal uh, for you to read. Um, we're going to have the scriptures in it with like a journal on the side with some devotions there in the end um, to just kind of help you walk through these Psalms um, together. And so our hope is that these Psalms would come alive to you. And so these are just three quick and key ways to understand the Psalms as to enliven them in our lives. And so um, they are also three components, Christocentric, covenantal, and the character of God. They are also three components that we will see throughout these 15 Psalms. And so anybody who preaches up here, so listen right now, because we may call on you sometime to preach, like, you know, need a lefty or need a, need a right. We may call you out of the bullpen. I don't know. Um, Anyone who preaches the Psalms this summer will preach them, I'm informing these guys because they're going to be preaching them, will preach them from a Christocentric, covenantal, character of God lens. And we're going to read them that way, and we're going to understand them that way as well. And so these 15 Psalms, we're going to jump in. Okay, now you can open your Bibles back up. I'm sorry, it took a little while to get there. Uh, but we want to do a little bit of teaching, and we want to do some preaching today, okay? The Word tells us to do both, preach and teach. So you can open back up to Psalm 120. Um, these 15 psalms ahead of us are known as the psalms of ascent. In fact, there's, there's a little subscript in your, in your copy of God's Word um, under, beside every big number, of uh, the, every big chapter number that will say, A Song of Ascents. And that title goes through chapter 134. And so... Uh, what it is believed, this is very interesting, what is, what is believed by, by many is that these psalms marked a, the, the Jewish ascent to Jerusalem for feasts and festivals. Now, we're not going to get into like a whole lot of that. There's, there's a whole lot of history here. 
Um, I, I don't necessarily think that we have to dig into all of that right here because I think there is plenty within the, the actual written scriptures that we will be able to see. But it is interesting to keep in the back of your mind that when it talks about being a psalm of ascents, that the people of God, not going on solo trips by themselves, but the people of God would venture from the, the, the place where they were to the, to the highest point in Jerusalem um, to, to worship God um, and to encounter God um, and to be there for those feasts and the festivals. And, and so what marks the beginning of any ascent? Anybody, anybody got? What marks the beginning of an ascent? Uh, uh, if, you have, if, you have a, if you have a high, you have a what? You got a low. And so what marks any journey that is an, that is an ascenting journey in and of itself um, assumes that there is a low point that, at which you're starting. And that may very well be the case in this opening psalm. You see the psalmist in a, in a place of great despair. Uh, we, and, and by the end, when, when it is assumed that they have uh, arrived at the place with the, to, to where they are ascending, there is a little bit more hope and confidence. In fact, in 120, you have this distressful time, and by, uh, by just two chapters later, you have the psalmist saying, I was glad when they said to me. And so you've kind of got this shift in perspective, but even by that time. And so ascent points our minds to the truth that there is a going up. And in both spiritual and geographical terms, there is a valley that these psalmists are experiencing. And so such is the case again with this very short psalm. And we will walk through this psalm now. Let's read verse 1. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. I'm not sure if, if, you, if you caught this, but in that one little line, in this one little verse, we see a ton of deep foundational theological truth that we cling to as Christians. Foundational to the Christian belief in the one true God is that we worship a God who hears us and a God who responds. Notice, notice that you, we, don't even, we don't even know what this psalmist's problem is yet, do we? We read, we read verse 1, and we don't know anything about his issue. We know that he's distressed. Now, we're going to find out what the issue is, but in verse 1, he's distressed. And, and, and what does he do? He cries out to the Lord, and not only does he cry out, but the Lord not only hears, the Lord answers. The Lord responds to him. And so again, foundational to our belief as Christians in the one true God is that God hears us and responds. Christian, your whole salvation, think about this for a second, your whole salvation, like the thing that you're doing with your life right now, uh, as, a, as a redeemed child of God, and, and your identity as a Christian is fully and wholly and only dependent on there being a God who hears and responds. That's a foundational truth to the world, to our belief, and to your personal salvation, that there is a God who hears and there is a God who responds. And in fact, at the very center of what is arguably Israel's most key moment in their enslavement uh, by Egypt, we see a God who hears. Go with me to Exodus chapter 2. We read this verse a lot here, and we're going to read it again, and then we're probably going to read it again. So Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. At the very center of this key moment in Israel's history, the biggest moment in their history, like the thing that Jesus will later help recall for his people and say, remember that? Yeah, that, that thing at the very end of chapter 2 of Exodus. Here's what this says. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Man, that is a, that is a powerful passage of Scripture, that you have a people who are in despair and they cried out for help. 
And what the Exodus account tells us, what Moses writes here, is that God, that their cry went up to God. He, he not only heard, but he remembered, and then he saw and he knew. And guess what? Later he delivers, right? He later delivers. God is an active God, one who is interacting with his people, one with whom we can interact with with great confidence that when we cry out to him, he will hear us. This is literally how Moses begins the story of Israel's deliverance. <laughs> Everybody knows this. Like, there's been movies made about it, right? Uh, you know, like, what's that movie that comes on on Saturday night before Easter, the old one? Ten Commandments? So, like... Like Moses kicks off that story, uh, the Prince of Egypt. You like you you've read these things. Uh, uh, secular, um, secular, the secular world knows this story. Everyone knows this story, and 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 the way that Moses begins this story of Israel's deliverance is by claiming that there is a God who hears them. By, by getting everybody's eyes off of even Israel and their situation and saying, you know what? They cried out to God, and there is a God in heaven who responds and hears and intervenes. And so that's, that is what is so important, that this psalm doesn't exist in a... This Psalm 120 does not exist in a vacuum. Hey, this is why we read this through a covenantal lens. Of course this, this psalmist cries out to God, and of course God responds to him because he would have known God did that for my, for my fathers, my grandfathers. He's done that for my, for my nation. He has done that for us. I, I believe it's Eugene Peterson that talks about that in almost every area of life that, that one of the only confidences that we have in being successful is continuing to be successful, right? Future success. Hoping that, hey, we might have like struck the jackpot today, but it could all be gone tomorrow, right? And so if we want to continue to be wealthy, we got to do something about it tomorrow. Eugene Peterson says, with the Christian faith, it's totally opposite. The, the security that we have is not in something only to come, but something that has happened. Your confidence in a, in a holy, loving God who hears and responds is, is not just that he says, yeah, I'll do that for you someday, but that he's done it for you time and time again. Amen? And that he's done it for the people of God time and time and time again. Amen? And so that's one of these, this, psalmist, this psalm does not exist in a vacuum. It's not just some like random story where another psalmist is going to come out later and the New Testament's going to be like, well, you know, God, we know that you did that one time, but, we, but we're, you know, we're really going to need you to do it again, because if you don't, like we're just gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna vanish for all of eternity. No, the confidence that we have is in what has been done for us, what has been accomplished for us in past faithfulness, and by God's grace that we heard about last week, by God's continuing grace, He sustains us, and He continues to give us more grace and more grace and more grace. But the mercy of God that we have in Christ is something that has been finished and completed. And so the psalm, again, doesn't exist in a vacuum, but it's an appeal to this covenant-keeping God. God, we know what you did for our fathers. Notice that, notice again, like, like we said, that after the first one, we still don't know what the distress is. The psalmist simply and intentionally bases his entire prayer not on his circumstance, but on his Lord. On, on he who is able to deliver. The Psalms teach us how to pray, don't they? <laughs> I mean, this is, a, this is a wonder. Jesus later will show us how to pray in Matthew 5, but it's both and here. We also see the, the pattern for prayer throughout the book of Psalms. Charles Spurgeon says this, and I want you to catch this, because I think this is very relatable to us. Charles Spurgeon says that there is a wondrous advantage to our troubles, and that's being able to call out to God. There is a wondrous, like, mind-bending advantage to the troubles that we experience, and that is our ability to call out to a God who hears and responds. What an advantage that we have in our troubles to call out to God. Let's read verses 2 through 7. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? 
a warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. And so we see here now this source of despair that the psalmist is in. Now we're introduced to, okay, here's, you know, what's, what's, what's behind all of this? And so we see the great source of this. And so in these verses, he despairs. In these verses that we just read, two through seven, this psalmist is despairing over where he lives. He's despairing over who his neighbors are. Now, I've talked to some of you, and you like, just don't like your neighbors, that David feels you, um, or, or uh, whoever the writer of this psalm is, he feels you. He doesn't like his neighbors. He doesn't like his town. Um, and, it's, and it's because of what we see in verse 2. The reason why is because of lying lips and a deceitful tongue, that there is deception going on. And, and here's something very important for us, that a theme that we see developed throughout the Bible that begins in the very first story of Genesis is that, is, 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 is that one of God's greatest enemies is deception, Right? We see that from the opening pages of Scripture. We see that all throughout the Scriptures, that one of God's great enemies is deceptions. Of the great enemies that the people of God endure, there is almost none as dangerous as deception, right? Deception against us and deception that we, in the way that we deceive others. Spurgeon, Spurgeon says here, again, I know Spurgeon, he's got, he's got this thing called Treasury of David, and it literally is a treasure, um, it's, it's not the Bible, uh, but, but, he, but he has this very helpful um, resource on, on the Psalms. And so you're going to hear me quote Spurgeon a lot. Spurgeon says here that it's better to be met with wild beasts and serpents than deceivers. It's better to be met with wild beasts and serpents than deceivers because there is, there is almost nothing as dangerous for us and against the glory of God as deception Deception, let me, let me just kind of make this a little bit more real for us. Deception, it lies at the root of our own sin. Did you know that? Just as, just as the serpent deceived Eve in the garden, so we deceive ourselves with our own sin. We deceive ourselves that what I want and how I feel is my highest good. We, 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 I know where your mind went because my mind goes here too, and I think it's okay to go here for a second. We see that in our culture like crazy right now, don't we? That we are deceived, that we are fooled, that we are, we are absolutely just beside ourselves with confusion, and there is no clarity, there is no truth. But church family, we also have to recognize that at the root of our own sin is also deception, ways that we have deceived ourselves that, that my pleasure, that, that my vengeance is what is going to help me feel better. And it doesn't, does it? And so this psalmist is enduring the deceitful tongue and the lying lips of others. And I think it's very important to just deception in general is a very strong enemy against our God. And so in light of deception being what deception is, you see it in the opening chapters of Genesis and then all throughout the Bible. And so understanding what that is, we would say that it's right for the psalmist to cry out to God against it, to deliver him from it, to deliver him from these lies. He is asking God to take action against this thing. He calls out to God to enact the justice that God has promised to take against unrighteousness. So he's simply calling out to God, and so he is appealing to who God is, the God of truth. So we, we're gonna, I'm going to bring back up this word, imprecatory psalms, um, the, imprecatory, the imprecatory psalms. And, and, and so we, we often wonder how to understand what are called imprecatory psalms, namely those psalms that, that are prayed down, um, that, 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 that those psalms that pray down judgment or action from God towards wickedness. And so here's, here's the deal. First of all, I can't fully say that I'm sure how to answer that. But I will also say that all kinds of unsatisfactory answers exist, that we just throw them out. That, that's one of them. That, literally, that's, that's, that's one, um, that's one um, way 
that, that some have chosen to deal with these psalms, that we just throw them out and that we don't, we don't, we don't think about them. We just kind of realize that they are in just kind of their historical context, and we don't read them through an, a Christocentric, covenantal uh, character of God lens, and we just read them only strictly, and yeah, it's what David was dealing with then, and let me just say that's an unsatisfactory answer to me, maybe not to you. <laughs> to me, that's a very unsatisfactory answer. However, let's start with what is most basic that anyone probably could agree on. What is plain from these imprecatory psalms and what is consistent in these kinds of psalms is that they are prayers up to God and not curses thrown at man. And so you read through imprecatory psalms. You read through psalms that are like we see. I don't know if, whether or not this is considered an imprecatory psalm, but, but obviously uh, the psalmist is asking God to deliver him. Um, he's, he's throwing, he's throwing in, in chapter 4, kind of letting these people know, whether through his prayers, um, that, that there's a warrior's sharp arrows with glowing, glooming, with glowing coals of the broom tree are coming. That's, 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 that's what we see, but what we see in these imprecatory psalms is that they are prayers uh, given up to God rather than curses thrown at man. And this is something that like, we really wish wasn't true. It's like, man, I, you know, that kinda, that's unsatisfactory for me. I really want to hurl these, these curses and hurl these insults at those people who are hurting me and affecting me. And listen, the, the, the Bible doesn't leave you in that tension. The Bible says there is a way in which to receive comfort and a way in which to receive confidence and assurance in those fiery trials and moments, and that's to come to God with them. Come to God with them, not to take vengeance yourself. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay, is what, is what he says. And so the implication of this is not something that God is very popular for in today's world. Here's what the implication of praying these prayers to God is, is that God is a just, holy, and a righteous God. The, the, the fact that we can pray, the fact that, that, that these psalmists can pray these prayers up to God and they feel so harsh and so direct to us is because they actually speak to and attest to something that is deeply true about the character of God, namely that he is just and he is holy and he is righteous. We, listen, you know us, we love to talk about the mercy of God. Just a couple weeks ago, Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, we talk about that mercy and that readiness that Jesus has to give and to offer and to extend mercy for any who will come to him. But Exodus 34 also says that we have a God who will by no means clear the guilty. We, he will by no means clear the guilty. We have Jesus. Listen, like... Uh, Jesus is not some like tag-on to the Old Testament God. The, the, the Word tells us that Jesus is the exact representation of God. He is, he is the, 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 the image of the invisible God. There is no difference between the Old Testament God and the New Testament Jesus. None. Other than the flesh, other than their, their particular roles within the Trinity, the Father and the Son, and, and, and the word that became flesh. But what these psalmists are doing is they're crying out to the character of God to say, God, I don't understand what I am enduring right now, but you have promised us that one day you will make all things right. One day you, in your justice, in your holiness, in your righteousness, in your wrath that exists in our holy God, you will one day make all wrong things right. And so just some points of application for us. That's a heavy, that's a heavy thing, right? It, it, man, you know, I don't even know if I could pray that to God with, with, a, with a pure and holy heart. Think about this and just see if it checks out. Think about this for just a second. When we pray to God, rather than directing our curses at man, there's something that happens in us, isn't there? Th think about being deeply offended by someone. I, that, might, that might be the most relevant thing I've ever said here, Right? Everybody's been hurt by somebody. And if you haven't, let me say this too, just as a, 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 a source of great comfort. If you haven't yet, just wait. You, you will be, okay? Um, when we pray to God, 
rather than direct our curses at man, there is something that begins to change in us, isn't there? There's something that begins to to happen in us. In that moment, when we are deeply hurt and deeply offended and we follow the pattern of the scriptures, in that moment, we we are assured of a God who is just and will right all wrongs, but we are also reminded of God's great mercy towards us, aren't we? We were reminded of God's great mercy towards us. When aimed correctly, when our response to these fiery trials that come at us, when aimed cor- uh, correctly, our response to these things help us recall that we were once enemies of God and we were once hostile towards Him and to His people, right? Listen, maybe you think like, maybe you got saved really young. Maybe, maybe you came to faith at a very young age and you're like, you know what, no, I, I, was, like a pretty, like I was a pretty decent person before that right? Can I just say, like, even in you thinking that, th- that attitude in and of itself is hostile towards God, the, 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 the attitude that I was, I was good enough, I was a decent person, that thought, like, l- let's just peel back all others, that thought right there is hostility towards God, because God has told us that there is none righteous, and, and in Ephesians 2, when Paul is recalling the salvation of his people, Paul says, you were hostile you were alienated. You were separated from God. And then what does he say? He doesn't say because you were like somewhat decent, God kind of had a scale and tried to figure things out. No, but God who is rich in his mercy because of the great love with which he has for us made us alive together with Christ. And so in these moments where we take these cares and these concerns to God, we are given great assurance that, you know what? I was once hostile towards God and towards his people. And yet, in his mercy, he saved me. And we're also reminded and assured of God's great care of us. 1 Peter 5, 7. Let's go there. 1 Peter 5, 7. This is just a great, great opportunity for us to see that, hey, the, the New Testament writers are saying the same thing as the Old Testament writers, right? 1 Peter 5, 7. Someone read that for me. That's right. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Would you say that this psalmist in 120 is anxious? Would you say he's dealing with anxiety and stress and despair? What does Peter say? Cast all those upon God because he cares for you. In fact, we, we don't only see Peter, we see Jesus apply in his teaching what the psalmist is doing. We see Jesus command his people to do the thing that the psalmist does in Matthew chapter 5, verses 44 through, 40, uh, 44 through 45. Someone read that, Matthew 5, 44 and 45. And so what is to be done with, yeah, that's great. Thank you, Sean. What is to be done with all of the angst and the bitterness building towards those that it feels are trying to destroy the people of God? The scriptures will continue to say, pray for them to God. Take your cares to him. You can, Jesus says, pray for them. Peter says, take your anxieties to him. The psalmist exhibits for us the only proper response, the only proper knee-jerk reaction is to take our distress to the Lord. I think involved in those prayers, if you're like, okay, well, what do I pray? Do I, do I pray for like God's, you know, them, them, them you know, turn or burn, baby, get sanctified or deep fried? You know, do I, do I pray all those things? No, I think, I think involved in those prayers that we pray, that Jesus commands us to pray, involved in those prayers is it at least at some level, that these people would repent. These people would, would turn to Christ. That these people would, would come to faith in Christ. That they would receive the mercy of Christ. But also, 
the Psalms do this, and this is hard for us. I, I, I don't know exactly how to counsel us in this, but also that God would be just and that we would appeal to the truth that he will make new all things, both through his mercy and his judgment. God, God again, we are all in this, in this room and in this world. We are all either recipients eternally of the mercy of God or of the judgment of God. We will stand before God either as Him as our Father or Him as our judge, as we have said before. And so when we pray, we pray again for, 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 for these to receive mercy. Why, why pray like this? And to what end? Again, because God does something in us when we do this, but also because Jesus says, so that you may be sons of your Father. You know who sons look like most of the time? Their father, right? Now, if they don't look like him, it doesn't mean that they've just, they're just like not as, they're not as kid. Maybe. I mean, you know, maybe. Uh, but we're just talking in like strict literal terms here. When, when we pray like this, we are not becoming God's children. We're not working to be adopted by him, are we? We don't earn our salvation through, through, through prayers, right? We, we receive salvation through faith in Christ. And, but what Jesus says is that when we pray like this, we're not becoming God's children or working to be adopted by him. Rather, what I, would, what I believe this is saying, we are experiencing the fullness of God's fatherly care of us. When we pray and we take our anxieties to God, in no moment will you feel more like a child of God than when you cry out to him in your distress and he hears you and he answers you. That is a spiritual blessing that we get from God. What, I don't know about you, but what do your kids do when it storms? <laughs> what, what do your kids do? They, well, they rush to your room in hysteria, right? Uh, they, they lay next to you, and they are somehow magically and peacefully asleep in seconds. It's like, how did you just go from the most wound-up human being in the world to asleep within a matter of seconds? Is the storm gone? Nope. Did the thunder go away? Did the, did the storm make them a child of their father? Did them running to the room make them a child of their father? No, but now their father is present. Their father's here. And they, and they feel the, the, the full benefit and grace that they have in having, as, having God as their heavenly father. Their father is present in that moment the fullness of sonship is not achieved, it is experienced, right? Sonship in that moment is not achieved as if we earned it by running to him. But Jesus says, so that you may be fathers of your children in heaven because you are experiencing the fullness of having God who hears and responds as your heavenly father when you pray. And can I just say, you're not going to experience that unless you take it to the father, I've, I've tried so many times taking things into my own hands, right? I don't know about you, I've, take, I've tried so many times taking, taking insults and deceit and lies and, you know, what, whatever, all those things into my own hands. And I'll tell you what, it, it, I feel like an exile. I feel like, I feel like an alien. But it's when I take those things to the Father that I experience the fullness of my sonship. God is present in our prayer. He is active in prayer. God responds to our prayer, and that's what Jesus is promising. We are all familiar with the pain and the helplessness and the misery that lies and slander against us brings, and there's not much that makes us feel more helpless and anxious than deceit. And so the psalmist shows us the only proper place to turn in that helpless moment, and that's to God. Turning to God is the proper response to slander. And let me just say this, if we're going to read through this through a Christocentric lens, this is where we culminate, that we see this nowhere more clearly than in our Savior. We see this kind of response no more clearly anywhere else than in Christ, the great fulfillment, the great fulfiller of this psalm. And so lest we make the mistake of inserting ourselves as this great fulfillment, okay, Psalm 120 told me what to do, now I'm going to go do it. Well, let me just say, you're, you're, you're up for a whole lot of more moments of despair because there will be moments where you don't respond 
first in prayer, right? That's been my experience for, for me. And in that moment, I don't respond in prayer. I respond in, how do I, how do I handle this? And so Jesus is the great fulfillment, the great embodiment of this psalm. It is Christ who is the subject. It is Christ who is the sufferer and the ultimate victor of this psalm. It is of Christ who the scriptures claim in 1 Peter 2 that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. When you take vengeance into your own hands, never, ever, ever will you be a just judge. Ever. ever. Like, ever. Even like when it's like, as in your mind, it's as black and white as day. There is still injustice in you because there is something in us all that we have contributed to this situation. There's, there's never anyone who is going to judge as justly as God will. And, and the scriptures say that Christ was reviled. He did not revile in return. He suffered and he did not threaten, yet continued entrusting himself to the only one who judges justly. It is through Christ that the same Peter in the same book will then command us, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. It is of Christ that the scriptures predict and fulfill that he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open up his mouth in Isaiah 53. It is of Christ that Hebrews 12.3 tells us, consider him. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. It is, a, it is Christ of whom the scriptures say, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The last great enemy is death, which Christ victoriously conquered and will one day put to death. And we put our trust in him. We trust him. We trust we trust Christ. It is Christ who the scriptures to, uh, call us to place our trust in for eternal life and the one who eventually will right all wrongs. And so we place our trust in, again in the great victor of Psalm 120, Christ, who called out to the Lord in many moments of his distress and was, showed us what oneness with the Father, what communion with the Father was like. We trust Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that um, your word teaches us of who Christ is, what Christ has done, and what we and how we are to respond to the work of Christ, to the person of Christ, to his work, and to the salvation, and that is through faith in him through faith in what he has done, not in what we could do. And so we thank you for your, your gracious, kind, your, gracious, your graciousness and your kindness towards us in him. And so, Lord, now we respond um, in, in just a, a, very, in a very significant way uh, through, through taking communion together where we recall the salvation that you have brought to us through him. And, and so, Lord, we, we worship in response um, to this great and glorious Savior now. In your name, amen.